Hello. How is everybody doing? Yeah. Super. Thank you for asking. All right. You can open up to Judges chapter 9. Continue through the book of Judges. Judges chapter 9, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together, Lord, uh, for these people that have come on out here. What a blessing it is to uh, you know, be with brothers and sisters, to get into your word, and to uh, just see what you might have to say to us tonight. You know, Each and every one of us, you have something for us in your word. You always do. It's not going to return void, so we can trust you. We can depend on you to meet us where we're at and to speak to us in exactly the way that we need you to. And Lord, so I praise you. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 All right, so that was nice. It was like a, it was a chorus of amens. Does everyone have a Bible? Does anyone need a Bible? Samuel, you have a Bible over there in the pile? There you go. Judges chapter 9. Open that thing up. Good stuff in there. Uh, Judges chapter 9, last week, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about Gideon. Um, and Gideon, uh, a great man of faith, certainly a man that a lot of people are familiar with in the story of scripture. But as we saw, uh, he, he it's, it's, it's not always what we, what, what comes to mind when we remember Gideon in scripture. He has uh, a great beginning and really kind of a tragic end. Uh, and we talked about those things the last couple of weeks, so, you know, his beginning, just this great man of faith. He brought back victory and authority to the people of Israel, and he set his people free. But in the end, uh, his story, he became a man of a man of vengeance. He turned on his own people and beat and killed many of them. Uh, he led the nation into idolatry, and he had seventy sons and many wives, and he had a son with a woman who wasn't his wife, it's actually that son who we're going to be talking about this week. And it's the son that is the product of his father's latter years. You know, it's a it's a dodgy thing uh, to to raise children. Uh, not that I'm speaking from experience. I don't have any kids of my own. But it, but it was in the not too decent, distant, not decent. Those are, those are similar, but completely different in meaning. It was in the not too distant uh, past that I was a child myself. Um, you know, so I can speak from that end of experience and you, and you tend to be the product of your parents. Um, and a lot of people, you know, they, 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 they might want to fight you on some, saying something like that. Maybe not physically. Let's not get carried away, but they would say, I'm nothing like my parents. You know, I'm different from my parents. And, and, and I've noticed that as I got older, more and more, I became just so much like my father. And, and even a little bit like my mother, more than just physically, which is strange for me. My brother got my father's look. And I seem to look like my mother, only with a pompadour. She doesn't have one of these. That'd be weird. But, uh, but my father, uh, you know, and, and especially when I was younger, my, my father had a, had a foul mouth and my mom a quick temper. And so it seemed that, you know, their spawn, my brother and I, uh, were, were always in the principal's office for one reason or another, something as a result of, of our sharp tongue, and uh, we were on a first-name basis with everyone, it seemed like, in the office. We'd walk in there, so what is it this time, Michael? Well, Nancy, you know, the guy, he bumped into me in the hallway, and, and he said, excuse me, but I didn't like the way he said excuse me. You know, I heard excuse me, 
but it sounded like get out of my way. And so, you know, there was, there was an altercation. Things happened. I didn't use that word in the fifth grade. Who would use that word in the fifth grade? But, you know, it's like, it's, it's, you know, there was, uh, there was stuff. It happened. And, uh, and, and they would be like, okay, call his parents. They're speed dial number two. And, um, and that's just the way it was. And, and you might think, well, well, you know, little Johnny, uh, wh where did he get his anger? Where did he get his temper? He's nothing like his mother and father. Well, chances are, uh, you don't know his mother and father as well as you think you do. And uh, you don't know them as well as little Johnny does. And, uh, and, and that's, it seems to be uh, the way that it is because we, we don't end up being that dissimilar from our parents. Now, I don't mean to say this to burden anyone with guilt. Uh, every so often it seems that there is, you know, just this a demon spawn born to good uh, saints of parents. Uh, but, but, but more often than not, this is, this is going to be the, the story, and, and, and Abimelech is an example of that. And you have this man in Abimelech, the man that we're going to study this week, this uh, son of Gideon born to this concubine woman. And, and you've got to look at him, and you say, well, where did Abimelech learn his vengeance? Where did the evil in him come from? Where did he learn that it was okay to strike down his own people, his own brothers and sisters? You know, where, 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 did he, where did he see that this was acceptable behavior for a man and for a leader? And you've got to come back and say, well, it's, it's seen in his father, in Gideon, in his latter years. You know, parents, you can, you can say what is right and what is wrong a million times over, but very often it's going to be your behavior that those children are going to model. It was their behavior that I always modeled when I was a child myself. And, and if the two don't match up what you're saying and what you're doing, they're going to follow. Uh, they're going to follow what you're doing. Uh, Spurgeon uh, said, not, not my dog, but the preacher, Spurgeon. If you met my dog at the potluck, he is a he is just a beautiful creature, isn't he? That fat English bulldog. But this is the fat English preacher. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, and the mass or the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. And Abimelech is the product of this. He's the product of his father's dishonor. Uh, but as you will see, where his father rejected the throne, where his father didn't want to be king, Abimelech is actually going to pursue it. We're going to begin with the first two verses, and I'm going to try and move quickly so that we can cover all of chapter 9. You might look ahead and see that it is quite lengthy. Uh, but verse 1, Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, that was the name given to Gideon when uh, he tore down the idols. And the people said, well, if Baal is God, then he can defend himself. And that's what Jeroboam means. It means let Baal stand for himself. And so Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I'm your flesh and blood. 
Abimelech was a child born to a concubine of Gideon. So uh, this woman wasn't married to Gideon. This was just uh, someone that Gideon was fooling around with. She wasn't his wife. In fact, she wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Shechemite. And Shechemites, these were their own people. They were half-breeds of the Israelites and the Canaanites. So uh, Gideon's family is, is exercising authority over these people. And, and Gideon says, well, that's not your place to exercise authority over these people. These aren't your people. These are my people. And, and he can see it as his birthright. You know, these are my people, and I should rule over them. So he comes before them and says, hey, wh which one's better? Do you want all these guys to rule over you? Or just one guy, just me. And remember, I'm one of you. Now, ironically, Abimelech's own name betrayed him. The name Abimelech means my father is king. Or as some, uh, or some translators uh, render it, my lord is king. And so, so here's a man, and he's saying, make me king. And his very name testifies the fact that he's not king. You know, and a lot of commentators love to play with this, and they all have their various explanations of why he was named that. Some say that, that his mother named him that. You know, here's this slave woman uh, that has this child, and it's the son of Gideon. And, and you know, and, and, it, and it, you know, Gideon didn't marry me, but my baby is the son of royalty. And then so she named him this way to, to bolster her ego, maybe, to, to, you know, make her shine in a special way. Oh, my father is the king. That's the name of her child. Or maybe Gideon named him this because in his latter years, even though he rejected the position of king, he began to see himself as the king. And certainly he was exercising authority as a king. You can read in chapter 8 all about that. So he might have said, well, well you know, I am the king. And, and so I'm going to name my son to reflect that. I'm going to name my son, I'm the king. And then, well, maybe they're going to look at him and think that he's the king. If he's got a name like I am the king, I need to get a little bit more specific about what I'm trying to say when naming this child. So I'll name him my father is the king. They're all going to know that I'm his father. So I am the king. And this was, and this, this could have been a big boost to his ego. Well, you don't really know why he was named my father is the king. And it's open for speculation and commentators love to do that when it comes to something like this. But this is what you do know for sure is that this guy was never meant to be the king. I mean, with a name like this other guy is the king, you got to know that you're not born to be a king. You know, and then this guy's stepping into an authority that he had no right to step into. He wasn't a king. He was never supposed to be. Even his father wasn't the king. But his name did testify to a glorious truth. Right? That our father really is the king. That the Lord is the king. And he was the only rightful king over his people, not any man. Abimelech was a man driven by ambition. You know, and I don't want to get sidetracked telling stories, but he was a man driven by ambition. And, uh, and ambition could be a really good thing. You know, maybe some of you are just born that way. You're wired that way, and you're an ambitious person. You want to accomplish a lot in your life. I have a, I have a coworker, so this story isn't as close to home. I was about to talk about my sister-in-law, and that would be 
That's inappropriate. When would she ever hear this message? Though? Anyways, but uh, I have this coworker, and she's got this list, and it, and it culminates with her uh, being the president. And I'm like, you know, I just, I, <laughs> you're a tutor. You know, I just, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not trying to like pop your bubble, but uh, I just don't see them in parts. But um, you know, just travel here, do this, run that, and overcome, and, and just conquer. And 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 Abimelech wanted to be a great man. Certainly as great, if not greater, than his own father. Yeah, but it led him to do terrible things and step over all kinds uh, of people in the process. Let me just say this. God can do a lot with an ambitious person. But before he can do anything with an ambitious person, that ambition needs to be put under the charge of God himself. You know, when it is... God will add to your ambition patience. He'll add to it patience so that you're not reckless. Right? You're not making rash decisions because you want your way and you want it now and you see the greater scheme of things. God will add to your ambition mercy so that you're not heartless. You're not stepping over people to get what you want from people. You know, hunger to accomplish Munch in life is an asset. With God, it can be a great thing. Without God, it can be foolish at best and dangerous at worst. In verse 3, when the brothers repeated all this to, uh, to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple a Baal Bereth. So they got this money from an idol's temple, a pagan god. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. So Abimelech takes the money, you know, from this pagan temple as if he was backed by Satan himself, and he uses it to hire these scoundrels, as some translations put it. It's a good word. You don't hear it very often. Use it today. Say it to somebody. It's not that bad. In Hebrew, this word here for scoundrels is a word picture, and it's speaking of a pot of water boiling over. These are the type of people that these guys are. They're just boiling over with evil. They're these hothead type of individuals, and he takes these guys, he takes this money, and he sets out to make himself king. And you can already see his ambition getting the best of him. When it's not submitted to God, he's already becoming reckless, and as you're going to see very soon... What he does is very heartless. Continuing in verse 5. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, that is Gideon. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. So here with his dirty money, and his dangerous men makes himself king. What's his first order of business? Let's kill all my brothers, all 70 of them, upon a single stone. They were the obstacle you know, that stood in the way of what he desired, according to his ambition. You know, there's so much that, that you can say in a passage like this. And, and, and I was talking to Corinne uh, this afternoon, and I was like, man, I just had to 
you know, take a hatchet to the message and really cut it down. Because let's be realistic, I don't want to keep you people here all night. You got uh, you got places to go. You know, time to sleep. I'm guessing, right? At nine o'clock, you don't really go out gallivanting at that hour. But uh, you know, I I really had to cut some of the fat out of this portion. There's a very simple lesson to learn here, right? A very basic truth to pull out of this short passage, right? You could say that that it's not right to kill people, right? That's a very simple, basic truth that you can pull out of this. Did everybody know that? I mean, that's a basic lesson, right? I mean, I, I hope I didn't ruin anyone's weekend plans. You're like, well, now i got to reschedule things. I was banking a lot of time on that activity. No, it's wrong. That's wrong to do, and you shouldn't do that. But a better question is to see why did he kill these people? Why do you think Abimelech did what he did? Exactly right. Right? And, and, and if you probe into the heart of the man, and of course it's all speculation, but, but you gotta, you gotta think about it. And it must have been hard for Abimelech growing up. There were the 70 sons of Gideon. Everybody knew about him. And then there was this one son born to a slave girl. And that was him. And his whole life, these were the sons of Gideon, and he was this illegitimate kid. And there had to be a sense of, of envy and jealousy in the heart of Abimelech. You know, something like that that just grew in him, that went unchecked in him, and that after so long of running amok in him, just wrecked his soul. You know, James 3.16, it's a good passage to note down, could be Abimelech's life verse. James 3.16 says, For when you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. It's a perfect verse for someone like Abimelech. You know, the, these things were neglected in him. They grew in him. They were harbored by him. Uh, so much that, that the words of James speak loud enough. You know, untold evil exists in the combination of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, this attitude of I want what I want when I want it. And envy, this attitude of uh, I want it all, I want what they got. And for Abimelech, it wasn't just about stuff. It was more than, than I want their car or I want their house. For Abimelech, it, it, it was this idea, and you, and you get the sense of it in the first couple of verses, where it was, I want their life. I want their happiness. And finally, I want them gone. And the result of all this was every kind of evil, just as James warns about. Seventy men slaughtered all because one man wasn't happy with his lot in life. And there's more than meets the eye a lot of time with our passive envy and ambition that we harbor inside of us. You know, because we all have these areas of, of this me-centered perspective, this attitude uh, that is all inward. And why can't I have that? I mean, they have it, and they don't even deserve it. Why can't I have something like that? Why can't I have a life like that? And James just shouts at us, you need to stay off this road. I've seen the end of it. 
And you know what? James personally saw the end of it because it was this very path of ambition and envy that the Pharisees took to murder Jesus. James's brother says, no, Abimelech is on this path. It's an evil path. It's already begun to reveal itself. You're going to see the fruition of it. You're going to see the fruit of it, that it's not fulfilling. And, and you think that you can go down there and I want it and I'll take it and, and I got to have it and, and we, we harbor the resentment for the lack of it. And eventually he's saying, you're going to be damned because of it. You need to be aware of these things. And I need to be aware of these things. And we can find these things in all of our hearts. They're manifest in our complaints. You know, so often what we're complaining about is right here. It's tangled up in this web of envy and ambition. And he's saying, hey, that's just going to lead you to an evil place. You got to stay away from it. You, you got to be aware of it. And in verse 7, we're going to begin to see where this path carries us. When Jotham was told about this, you know, this one surviving son of Gideon, he climbed up on top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. You know, Jotham, this last son, now he's going to issue this passionate warning and it's going to come out as this parable. And it's hard to understand at first, and it's weird and confusing, but this is, in fact, the first parable in all of Scripture. And it's going to be a glorious one to understand the truth portrayed in it. So hang in there as we read it, beginning in verse 8. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves, and they said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, come, be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. And the thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And here we have the parable, talking trees. And it's weird. And and I remember my, my brother watching Lord of the Rings, and I saw Talking Trees, and I said, I never want to see that movie. It looks terrible. Talking Trees is ridiculous to me. You read this in Scripture, and 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 but you have in you the consideration that, that these trees aren't really talking. I mean, this thing didn't really happen. And it's good to note down when you're talking about parables. This is just a simple story to illustrate a spiritual truth. That's what a parable is. Right, and, and I've, I've heard time and again from skeptics, and they say terrible things like, well, I can't believe you believe in that book, that archaic piece of literature. It has talking trees in it. And they point out these things that are just completely absurd. 
It's a parable. It's a story. You know, the fact that they're saying something that only puts out their, their, their literary ignorance concerning the subject of it. Yeah, you don't need to worry about those kind of complaints. You just need to get the meat out of this message. And there is a glorious, meaty message here in this parable. It's a very simple one also, in fact. But a very beneficial one, if you'll bear up under it. You can note it down for you note-taker. Here's the simple truth portrayed in this parable. And it's just this. It is never a good idea to take shelter in a thorn bush. Right? That's it. It's never a good idea to take shelter in a thorn bush. But that's exactly what these people were about to do. In verse 16, Jotham gives us the meaning of his message. And he says, Now if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jeroboam and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to you, and, and, and to you think that, uh, that my father fought for you, you know, to think that my father fought for you, he risked his life to rescue you from the hands of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You've murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy. And may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Bear, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. You know, the message is pretty plain and clear. If you take shelter in a thorn bush, you're going to pay a price. You're going to get hurt, and you're going to get burnt. Um, and, and you know, when I was reading this, uh, this story came to mind. Um, and and I, I hate to do this. You know, and you're like, Michael, you've been sharing too many stories lately, your own personal stories. I'm not here to you know, hear about your life. This isn't therapy. We're not a small group. I don't care. You know, but, uh, but you're going to hear it. <laughs> because it's a, it's a perfect illustration for the point. Um, when I was younger, uh, my neighbor, who was about four years older than us, uh, his best friend, uh, the kid's name was Steve. He was 6'5", his freshman year. Um, I mean, he was a big fella. And since they were four years older than us, it was just this huge, you know, height uh, discrepancy between the two of us. And, and they were very athletic, and no Turner has ever been much for sports. Um, so, but, but they would always come to our house, the two of them, they would knock on the door, football in hand, and when we would open it, they would shove it into our chest and say, get outside, we're going to play. And, and they would just abuse us. I mean, these two kids, and, and we're standing next to each other, and, and I'm in like the fifth or sixth grade, and he's a freshman or sophomore, I'm up to his ankles, you know, and, and, and he's it just, every single time, uh, we would go back inside, just, uh, destroyed on the outside and the inside. I mean, just, uh, you know, bruised and beaten, but humiliated and insulted. And, uh, and one day, uh, we got it in our head, 
that we would we would never be able to beat these two athletically. It's just it's not in the cards for us genetically as Turners, um, but we would be able to conquer the, uh, them uh, with our brutality. Uh, that, that's what we brought to the table as Turners. Um, so, uh, you know, the, this this guy and, and Peter, he's the name of my neighbor and his best friend Steve, the very tall guy, uh, he loved to intercept my brother's throws, uh, which wasn't difficult because my brother was a terrible, you know, thrower. I don't know what you call it in football quarterback, right? You're the one that, you're my, you're my football, football coach. Come on. You're the one teaching me during the Super Bowl. I was like, who are those guys? Those are the players. Oh, that's why they're wearing those nice hats, you know? But, uh, <laughs> um, but my brother is terrible thrower and I was a worse catcher. So, uh, he would always intercept our throws. So we got it in our head, um, that, that if I ran, uh, near the rose bushes and my brother's throw, uh, you know, came up Short, or I came up short on catching my brother's throw that Steve, the big guy, would intercept. And um, and our plan worked out perfectly. And these rose bushes, they were in the front of the yard back then. They're my brother's, my grandmother's rose bushes uh, before my dad moved them. And, and I mean, he, my brother threw it. I came up short. Steve wasn't paying attention. He caught that football, and then he collapsed right into the rose bush. And he's a big fella. That rose bush absolutely split under the weight of him. And all the thorns of that bush just wrapped around him. And he was caught inside this bush and just tears streaming down his face, you know, and blood running uh, from his limbs. I saw my biggest bully brought down that day. And by a bush, you know, it was by a bush. That's what did it. The bush did it. We did very little, you know? But his body was forever marked by this experience. You know, he had these scars that he carried with him because the thorns dug so deep into him. And he never picked on us again, though he grew to be well over seven feet tall. Um, you know... I learned a very practical spiritual lesson that day and one that I desire to pass on to you, you wonderful people that I have not thrown into thorn bushes. Um, and it's this, you said it, that taking shelter in a thorn bush is a bad idea. You don't want to do that. You don't want to seek refuge there. You don't want to take shelter there. You don't want to make that your home. You're going to get hurt. And Shechem was warned. You know, this son, Jotham, comes to him and he says, listen, if you get tangled up with this guy, you're going to be cursed as a result of him. And you're going to get hurt because of him. You're going to be marked for the rest of your life as a result of your relationship with him. You know, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about thorns in the parable of the sower, doesn't he? And what do the thorns represent in that parable? They represent the cares of this world. And what do they do? They choke out the word of God in our life. You know, he says, when you get caught up in the thorns, they're going to change your entire relationship with God. They're going to choke something out in you. You, you might be laying down in this dangerous place because you think it's going to satisfy something in you. I mean, why else would Shechem do it? They had to have thought that this was the right thing to do. 
well, this is going to make me happy. This is going to somehow satisfy me. But he's saying, listen, this is going to rip you off and rob you. These thorns are going to really hurt you. You, you need to get out from under their influence. It's a trap, and it's been around since the very beginning. You know, it's, 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 it's the same as in the Garden of Eden. It's this thing that they reached for that they thought would satisfy them. This thing that they reached for because they thought it would fulfill them. It's this thing that Shechem pursued because they thought it was right for them. He said, oh boy, that is, that is a beautiful rose that you're reaching for. But when you get it, you're going to get a thorn with it. And it's going to hurt you. It's going to mark you. It's going to become a curse to you. And in verse 22, we see this begin to happen. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brothers, uh, Abim- or on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers in opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. Three years is a long time. And maybe a lot of people had forgotten about this entire event. You know, but God hadn't forgotten about it. The innocent blood had been shed. An evil deed had been committed. God gave them three years. And I think that's important to note down. You know, God in his mercy gave them three years to repent. Three years to make things right. You can see the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. You can see the love of God towards these people, but they refused. They refused to get rid of Abimelech. And so God decides to start stirring the pot. You know, God stirs the pot and he exposes their heart. And what was in their heart? You know, in their heart, this is interesting, was the reality that this very thing that they pursued didn't make them happy. This is all that God did to stir the pot. He said to them the revelation of the truth that they knew deep inside themselves already, that they had made a bad decision. But instead of turning to God, repenting to God, and admitting to God that what they did was wrong, They reached out for another person, and that's what we're going to see. You know, what a silly thing that we often do. We're in one bad situation, and in order to fix that situation, we throw ourselves into another situation. You know, God, he's he's waiting there for you. He wants to hear from you, and and he'll be merciful to you. He's not going to spite you when you call out to him, you know, and and, and crush you like a bug under his mighty holy fingers. I mean, God, they could have called out to him. Maybe it would have been a very different story in that situation. I mean, how silly of them to, to go from one bad to an even worse. But that's what we're going to see coming up. You know, it's like a person that's, that's, that's uh, I don't know, they're, they're having trouble at home. They're fighting with their parents. They're like, okay, I know the solution to the problem. I'll move in with my girlfriend. You know, it's, it's, it's just you're going from one bad situation to another bad situation. You need to reevaluate the way you're making these decisions. But that's not what they did. Verse 26. Now, Gail... Son of Ebert, or Ebed. Uh, and, and, and here's this guy, and you're gonna love this guy. He's a, he's the drunk, 
that's going to take on the world. He moved with his brothers into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. And after they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trotted them, they held a festival in the temple of, of their God. And while they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. You know, they're all drunk and full of courage. Then Gael, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem? As if Shechem is a person. It's a city. Uh, you're, you're very drunk. Uh, that, that we should be subject to him. Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebel his deputy? You know, serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. I don't understand that line. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of them. I'd say to Abimelech, I love this, call out your whole army. You know, here you got, here you got this guy, and he's drunk, and, uh, and, and Shechem is, 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 they're jumping on the first guy that's willing to stand up and say, I'll take him on. And that guy happens to be, uh, the, the drunkest guy at the bar that day. And so drunk that he picks on the biggest, baddest guy at the bar that day and says, just call him out. I'll take on him and his whole army. You know, and it's just, it's foolish. You know, he's, he's the, the guy at the bar that, that blinks and, and wakes up in the hospital. And it's like, how did I get here? He told the wrong guy to step outside. And Gail uh, just told Abimelech uh, to step outside. And, and he's about to get destroyed. In verse 30, when Zebel, the governor of the city, heard what Gail, son of Abed, said, he was very angry. And undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gail, son of Abed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come Lie in wait in the fields. In the morning, at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gale and his men come out against you, do whatever your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night, took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gale, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city uh, gate. And just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place, when Gale saw them, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. And Zabel said, uh, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. And, and I'm sure that excuse went over very well with Gail. Uh, you know, it's the morning after, and the guy's probably a bit hungover, you know, and, and his, his head is pounding, and the world is spinning. And, and he says, you know I, I, you know, I know my vision isn't quite what it, what it might have been if I was a more sober man. But those mountains look like they're moving. <laughs> and and Gel says, No, you're just you're you're crazy. It's the shadows, it's no big deal. And in verse thirty seven, but Gail spoke up again. Look, people are coming down from the center of the land. The company is coming from the direction of the soothsayer's tree. And Zebel said to him, Where is your big talk now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gael led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and uh, many fell wounded in the fight all the way to the entrance of the gate. Abimelech stayed in uh, Aruma, and Zebel drove Gael and his brothers out of Shechem. It's no surprise that Gael loses the fight. He was a drunk with a big mouth. He wasn't the answers to 
Shechem's problems. Uh, but what is surprising is what happens next in verse 42. The next day the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance to the city gates. Then two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered it over, or, or scattered salt over it. And it wasn't a, enough for Abimelech to squash the rebellion. You know, no one's fighting at this point. These are just regular people going out to the fields to work. And Abimelech slaughters them all. He destroys the city. And then he scatters salt over the ground so that nothing will ever grow there again. There will never be life there again. This is actually exactly what archaeologists have uncovered in the ruins of Shechem. They've found the city destroyed and the fields uh, barren because they were saturated with salt. And they tried to take shelter in a thorn bush. They wanted to make that their home. And God gave them three years to repent and get out. But they refused. You know, if you choose to stay, you're going to get hurt. And that's just the reality of it. It's going to leave a mark upon you. You're going to end up barren and dried up. There's not going to be any fruit in a spiritual sense left in us when we dwell in these thorny places. It's a bad place to be. And it's a worse place to stay. you got to get out while you still have the chance. Uh, th this is the advice of the psalmist. It's a psalm that I'm sure you're all familiar with. If you know Psalm 91, verse 1, uh, you can write it down. I'm sure it will sound familiar to all of you. Psalm 91, verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And you'll find rest there. You'll find peace there. You'll find what you were actually looking for all along. You'll find that this shelter, taking shelter under this king, is the best place to be. It's the right place to be. You know, and what, is, what does this mean for you? I don't know. You know, it's... Uh, Sam always uh, Sam always tells me that when he starts speaking in these great vague generalities, Kareen uh, always says, "Well, you know, what is what does this mean?" And so I always think about that whenever I'm working on a message. Now, now what does this look like for you practically? What is how does this appear in us individually? I think it's different for all of us what these thorny patches look like when we lay down in them. You know, maybe uh, for some of us, the thorny patch that we might lay down in or camp out in 
would be anger or resentment, like Abimelech. It's these things that they ensnare us. It's these sins that pierce us and hurt us. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a sexual sin or gossip or slander. You know, maybe it's uh, maybe it's division or drunkenness that is our thorny patch that we lay down in. Whatever it is, I, I don't know. And and it's I'm not here to condemn anyone. You know, your heart, uh, if this applies to you, is already convicting you. I'm just, I just want to warn you and tell you, hey, God loves you. He accepts you just as you are, right? But if you lay down in these dangerous things with these dangerous people, you're going to be hurt. That's the reality of it. That's why this book was written, right? That's the point. It's this simple truth to tell you that these things, these places, these people that you've been warned about, they're the thorns, they're the thing that's going to hurt you. Uh, you know, Mike Ness, uh, some of you know the band uh, Social Distortion. I, I love Social Distortion. They're fantastic. Uh, they're very chaff. But anyways, Mike Ness, he has this wonderful quote. Um, and he used to say it a lot when he was struggling with alcoholism. He used to always say, uh, we're not punished by our sins, or, or we are punished by our sins, not for them. We're punished by our sins, not for them. Right? I think there's a powerful truth in that. Right? You've already been saved. You've already been set free. You are under the love of God. You're not going to be punished for your sins. But we can all still be punished by them. We can all still really be hurt as a result of them. And when we lay down in them, when we camp out in that space, in that sin, under those thorns, we're going to get hurt as a result of our sins. You know, God's not going to strike you down. He died for your sins. He already knew you were going to do those things. But we're striking ourselves down. We're hurting ourselves in the process. And God wants to set us free of those. He wants to lift us out of that place. You know, he gave them three years to do just that. They didn't listen. You know, we should because we still have a chance. Verse 46, on hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of Elbereth. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all of his men went up Mount Zalmon. He took an axe, cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick! Do what you have seen me do. Uh, so all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. Saw the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. It's a tragic end to these poor people. If only they had left when they still could, got up out of that thorny person. But Abimelech burned them alive. And after this, for no apparent reason, he goes to attack another town uh, that had nothing to do with this entire fight. He's just drunk 
on rage and filled with bloodlust. In verse 50, we continue. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower uh, to set it on fire, so he's planning on doing the same thing he did to the last tower, you know, uh, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Can you say praise the Lord for that? I don't know. But hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. What an appropriate end for this terrible man. You know, how do you put sin out of your life and out of its misery? You, you don't treat it mercifully. You know, you, 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 you starve it, you attack it, you kill it. You don't put on the mittens and, and be gentle with it. Uh, and that's exactly what this woman did. And, and praise God for this woman. She saved her people. She drops a five pound uh, cooking utensil on this guy's head. You know, it'd be the equivalent today of a woman uh, killing a, a home intruder with a frying pan. You know, that's what she did. She used a cooking utensil to kill this, you know, vicious criminal. And him being the, you know, macho, manly man that he is, he says, okay, you know, he calls his buddy over, take out your sword, kill me, because I don't want people to remember me for this woman uh, and say that she killed me. What he didn't know is that this story would be written down, and that's exactly what we would be doing, because we all know the reality of it. Uh, his armor bearer might have gotten the final blow that took his life, but it was really this woman that took down Abimelech, and with a kitchen utensil, no less. Um, let me end with this, because it's already, you know, time's already far spent. Uh, when all of, when all six foot five of Steve went into that bush, uh, it had to have hurt. I mean, I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine the pain that he was feeling, the pain that I saw on his face as he was crying out in anguish. And as much as he tried, he couldn't get himself out. And as much as we tried, we weren't much help either. You know, who are we? We were just a, a couple of ankle biters to Steve. The man was a Goliath. Um, and Peter, my neighbor, had to run and get his father. And Peter's father was the only one that was strong enough to get Steve out of the bush. And I think this just bears relevance for what we're talking about. You know, it wasn't easy 
getting him out of that bush. I'm sure it hurt, and there were a lot of tears. But when he got out, that had to have been one of the greatest moments of his whole life. If you find yourself in thorns tonight and there's something in your life that you just wish wasn't a part of your life, something that you wish that you could get out of, something that you wish that you could stop doing, something that you're entangled in, listen, you, you can you can talk to us. And there are just so many mature, great, spiritual people here tonight. But the fact of the matter is, is, is we can't be of that much help. But we have a father that we can go to together that can pull people out of these thorny situations that can easily entangle us, that can pierce us and mark us, these things that are hurting us. You can stay in that spot. And tonight, which had to have been one of the, the saddest scripture stories that you can hear in scripture, you know, I mean, one of the, no one's going to leave here, you know, uh, skipping and frolicking, you know, through fields of daisies, not with a story like this. But if you stay in those situations, this will be your story. And it's a sad story. And it's a very tragic story. But as much as it's that story, it's a completely unnecessary story. Because all of us do have a very loving and gracious Father that can pull us out of it, that can lift us from those thorns. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll end with this verse. I love the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's in the T section of your New Testament. Thessalonians is going to start the T section. Timothy and Titus. I should turn there myself rather than talk. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to read verse 23 and 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Send with something lighter. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean? Set apart. Isn't that a wonderful thing to consider in the context of tonight's study? You know, what does it look like to be sanctified? It looks like getting pulled up out of the thorns and being set apart from them. And this is what our Lord can do. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May he pull you out of those things. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the wonderful promise in verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You know, I always think at times like this, you know, if I'm caught in the thorns, if there's something entrapping me, ensnaring me, if it's hurting me, these sinful places or sinful people that I'm caught up with, I just need to call out to God and God's going to help you. But what does verse 24 say? It doesn't say call out to God. It says God is already calling out to you. That's how close he is to you. He never left you. He's still with you. 
when you're in the midst of the thorns, caught in a mess. And he has the capability to lift you out and set you apart for his own glory and good pleasure. Let's go ahead and end with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. Lord, we can consider a story like this tonight that is savage and tragic. You know, you have this terribly wicked man that did terribly wicked things. And, you know, for me, I could put that next to you and just be like, wow, I'm so glad that I am under the shelter of the good king. You know, thank you, Lord, that you're the kind of king that you are, that you're kind and gentle, that you're patient and merciful. And thank you, Lord, that you love us you're not looking to strike us down and punish us. You saved us so that you can sanctify us. You saved us so that you can pull us out of the thorns of this life. Set us on a new path. You are faithful. You've called us. And you can do it. And God, I praise you for it. I pray, Lord, that every person here if they see those things in their life, those thorns, these sins, these things that are separating them from you, causing distance between them and you. Lord, that tonight they would call out to you even as you are calling out to them. And they would be set apart for your purpose for your good pleasure. Lord, I thank you. I praise you, Lord. I trust all these things into your hands. Precious name. Amen. 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 All right, God bless you.